Well, good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. And as you do that, I'm going to tell you about this crazy story that I heard about this week. And uh, it involves a man named David Ayers. David Ayers was a regular guy watching an NHL hockey game, just sitting in the stands with his lovely wife, enjoying the game, when unexpectedly he found himself in the role as their backup goalie. At 42 years of age and 15 years removed from having a kidney transplant, his dreams of playing professional hockey had been long gone. Let me explain. Uh, David Ayers was the Zamboni machine driver. And at the practice rink, this was kind of his job. And in exchange for some free tickets and dinner with his wife on a regular basis, he agreed that in, the, in an extremely rare event, he would serve as their emergency backup player, but it's not something that he ever thought would happen because not just one, but two goalies would both have to be injured in the same game for them ever to ask him to do that. I mean, what are the odds? Well, after the first goalie went down, David said, I left my seat and I got half dressed in my hockey gear. It was a formality. It's happened from time to time. But then his heart started pounding as his phone began to blow up with more text messages and another collision had occurred on the ice and now the backup goalie was down for the count and he got injured too. It was David's turn to step out into the spotlight. Can you just imagine this? Uh, things didn't start well. Uh, the first two shots he faced went right into the back of the net uh, one of his teammates on the Hurricanes skated over and tried to encourage him, saying, look, David, uh, j just, just have some fun. We don't really care, even if you let 10 goals go in. David said he appreciated that uh, word of encouragement, and he went on to say that that was the turning point for him. He stopped the next eight shots in a row from going into the net, and they secured the win for the game. The Hurricanes coach said he gave us an incredible memory that night. David will go down in history as the oldest goalie in the NHL to win during his hockey debut. So I share with you that crazy story uh, to get at the importance of recognizing and respond, responding to God's call on our lives. And so let me give, begin with this penetrating question. Are you ready to respond to God's calling? Friends, Jesus has told us, his followers, that we are to be ready, be prepared. The Apostle Paul says you've got to be ready in season and out of season. Now, it's not our job to know how the Lord is going to use us or how the Lord is going to call us, but it is our job to be ready at all times to answer that call when he comes. God doesn't ask me to be the right age or have the right skills. He simply asks me to be ready to serve when he asks me to serve, and he will take care of the rest. As the old expression says, he does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Now, you may not be called into full-time ministry, but really we are all called to serve God in some way, shape, or form. In fact, the term vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. We are all called to serve the Lord in our time. So think about where God has called you in the past. Uh, for some of you, uh, God has called you to your particular place of work. Uh, for some of you, God has called you to a certain school. Uh, for some of you, God has called you to a certain ministry. Uh, we heard from the Antons today that God called them to mission work in Romania. Where has God called you in the past, and where might God be calling you right now? And how do we discern that? What's that whole process like? 
Well, I want to demystify that process for you as we look at our text in Nehemiah chapter 2 today, and we'll see here that this topic and its significance cannot really be overstated. And what we're going to see in our text is that answering God's call involves some internal struggle, and it involves some external struggle. And this will make sense as we go along, but I think you'll see that um, there's different phases in discerning God's call. And so that's the title of my message today, How Do I Answer the Call of God? And when it comes, usually there's these four distinct phases, and those phases will serve as the outline for today's message. And so that's where we're going to be, and before we get there, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this text, and we thank you for your call on our lives. I'm reminded of the words of the old hymn, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. So may we be sensitive to your voice today, and dare we ask you to speak, Lord, for your people are listening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I'll start with phase one. Phase one I'm just going to call the waiting phase, the waiting phase. Phase. By way of review, you'll recall that we met this man named Nehemiah last week. He was serving in the government of Persia. That's modern-day Iran. He was a man that was located over in Persia, but we said that he was a man with a dislocated heart. His heart really was in Israel, in Jerusalem, with the people of God and the suffering that was existing uh, back then, 2,500 years ago. It's somewhat surreal for me to read and preach these texts in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 and realize uh, the kind of suffering and, and tragedy that's happening in that same part of the world, even in our day. And so uh, we ought to be praying for that, that region as well. So Nehemiah was weeping over uh, Jerusalem, and he was also considering how he might play a part in the solution to that problem over there. And he told us in the last verse in chapter one, you remember what it was? He says, I was cupbearer to the king. And that brings us to chapter two. Chapter two, verse one starts like this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. The setting here is in the month of March. Now, that means it's been about four months since the events that we read about in chapter one have occurred. Four months have now gone by. And what's Nehemiah been doing over the course of those four months? Well, we already know. He's been praying, he's been fasting, and he's been waiting. Now, that's very common. During the time between what is and what could be, for anybody who's emotionally burdened or involved in a situation, we have to learn to wait and deal with this time period of phase one. Now, nobody likes waiting. It's confusing to wait. It's frustrating to wait. There's all kinds of stuff that feel unresolved during the waiting phase. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense why we're waiting. And that's why waiting for the people of God always takes faith. When it comes to answering God's call, we must wait for the right timing. We must wait for the right circumstances. We must wait for God to move. Because what could be and what should be can't be until God is ready for it to be. What could be and what should be can't be until God is ready for it to be. And so Nehemiah is waiting. And sometimes waiting takes a lot of faith. It's kind of like enduring uh, the cloudy weather on a day like yesterday when the sun is not shining out there. But just because the sun isn't shining, that doesn't mean there is no sun. It's up there. It's just clouded in that moment, and during the waiting phase, sometimes we can't see the sun shining. Just like that, sometimes we have to wait for God to prepare the circumstances uh, so that they're just right, and then the sun comes out. And so this is what Nehemiah is waiting for, simply praying and fasting, and he's waiting on God. We might not like waiting, but it's something that God's children always have to do. Hebrews six twelve says this, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. 
And then after he waits, about four months go by, and here's what he describes for us on an ordinary day at the palace when they were having a meal. Nehemiah is doing his job just like every other day, and, and here's what he says happens in, in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, when the wine was brought before him, meaning the king, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Two observations here. First, you must understand that in those days in a royal court setting, the officers of the, of the court were not allowed to bring their own private emotional problems with them to the palace. You were not allowed to even look like you were sad. There was an etiquette that existed there. Um, and, and no matter what was going on in your own personal or relational life, you had to leave that stuff at the door and you had to have your game face on when you were with the king, whether you felt like it or not. And so if you did come into the king's presence sad, the king had the legal right to banish you or even to have you killed. And so Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. I was scared. Now, I love Nehemiah because he's so honest here. He just re meets me like right where I live. He says, you know what? I was afraid in that moment. Sometimes uh, I have great faith, but you know what? Sometimes I'm scared. I wonder if anybody can relate to him right here. And what this tells me here is something really important. What it tells me is that if I'm experiencing fear, that does not necessarily mean that I'm outside of God's calling in my life. Just because it's scary doesn't mean it's not of God. Just because it's scary to confront that difficult person in my life doesn't mean God isn't calling me to confront that difficult person. Just because it's scary and I get some butterflies before I apply to that position that I want doesn't mean God isn't calling me to apply for that position. Just because it's scary to go to that interview doesn't mean God doesn't want you to go to that interview. Just because it's scary to go back to school in the middle of my life and get my degree, that doesn't mean God is not calling me to go back to school and get my degree. This is so key because our Lord Jesus oftentimes calls us, his people, into the uncomfortable, into the unknown, and our emotions have not yet caught up with us. But our fear is not there that God might punish us. Rather, sometimes it's just that it's in the uncomfortable that I learn the most significant lessons of the spiritual life and walking by faith. Psalm 39, verse 14 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Amen. Yes, the Lord delivers us, but sometimes when he delivers me, he delivers me in such a way that my voice is shaking a little bit, and my hands are trembling a little bit, and my heart is racing a little bit, and my breathing is rapid, and sometimes it can be a scary thing to follow God with nervous sweat on my brow. I simply take one step at a time towards what God is calling me to do. So this is Nehemiah. He's got faith, but he's also got some real fear. So if you're in the waiting phase, I, I think the answer there is you gotta be patient and wait for God's call. I was talking with one of my colleagues, Cindy Weaver, who teaches a college course on leadership uh, on the book of Nehemiah, and she will often ask the students as she begins, what did Nehemiah do first? And she says, usually the students will answer, well, first he prayed, right? She goes, no. Well, okay, first he wept. That's what he did first. She goes, no, that's not either. She said, before he even heard about the state of affairs in Jerusalem, Nehemiah had lived his daily life before the king, doing a job that was not coveted by many in such a way that when he was sad, the king immediately noticed the change in his countenance. Long before Nehemiah knew that he would one day need the king's favor, he predisposed the king to grant it to him by being faithful and a pleasant servant of God. And isn't that what we're all called to do in our daily lives? How else can we draw people to Christ? 
And so long before Nehemiah ever got this calling, he was faithful. And that's a good lesson for all of us. So Nehemiah sat, and the king says, what's up? That's a literal translation from the Hebrew. What's up? And then it says this in verse three. Nehemiah records this. He says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? As a little bit of background, there's a saying, maybe you've heard it in our culture, don't try to change that. It's like, it's like the law of the Medes and the Persians. Anybody heard that expression before? What that means is it's really difficult to change a certain policy or to change a certain position. And the idea there is that the Persians had this reputation for being a people who were impossible to change. For those of you who are married, you know there are certain things about your spouse that are very difficult to change, right? They're kind of stuck in their ways. Any married people relate to that? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand right now. Just imagine that feeling times a thousand, and it's being legally codified by the Persian Empire. This is what Nehemiah is up against. Now here Nehemiah is facing this Persian king, and this same king, if you remember from Ezra chapter 4, actually had a policy against rebuilding the city, and Nehemiah is praying and asking for him to change his policy on that. Why is Nehemiah facing these impossible circumstances? Well, I don't really know. But what Nehemiah does know is that in Proverbs chapter 21, it says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. And so Nehemiah is bringing this matter to God in prayer. The great missionary Hudson Taylor once said this, quote, it is possible to move men through prayer alone. So that's a good lesson for us, too. Maybe you have someone above you that's kind of a touchy supervisor or, or maybe somebody in, in political leadership or you just have a difficult person in your life. Our lesson is that God calls us to pray for those individuals. Now, if God could sway King Artaxerxes to finance the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, then God can certainly change the hearts of those who stand between you and the calling that God has for you. I mean, humanly speaking, there was no way in the world King Artaxerxes was going to support this effort, but prayer takes us beyond human possibilities, right? Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so Nehemiah is praying, and he's showing us how to depend on God for what we can't do ourselves, and then he's going to say the right thing at the right time in the right manner. So Nehemiah explains the situation about why he's sad, and the king responds in this way. Look at the text in verse 4. It says, the king said to me, what is it that you want? What a beautiful question in Nehemiah's ears. What is it that you want? Teenagers, this is what you want to hear from your parents, okay? When you hear this question, that's your cue. Go ahead and ask for what's been on your heart, okay? What is it that you want? I'm kidding a little bit here, but I wonder what this was like for Nehemiah to hear that question after four months. What is it that you want? And we, the readers, if we've never read this story before, are standing in awe of this question, going, could it be that after all of that waiting phase that the time has now come for the answer? Could it be that this is the moment? Could it be that this is Nehemiah's golden opportunity? Could it be that God himself is answering his prayers? Now, before we even get to Nehemiah's response, let me just ask you to look at that question on the screen, and let me ask you, how would you answer that question if that question was posed to you? What if God Almighty were to come to you today and say, what is it that you want? 
How will you answer that question? That's a crucial question in terms of determining God's calling on your life. You might recall that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here for three and a half years in his earthly ministry, asked something similar to that question on several different occasions. In the Gospel of John, in chapter one, there's some people following the Lord Jesus. He turns to them and says, what is it that you want? You'll recall in John chapter five with the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus, before he heals him, turns to the lame man and says, what is it that you want me to do for you? What is it that you want? See, what we want, our desires, have been placed there by divine design. Look at this quote by John Eldridge. He says this, Desire, both the whispers and the shouts, is the map we've been given to find the only life worth living. What is it that you want? What are those desires that God has placed in your heart? Now, I'm not talking about sinful desires or fleshly desires, so don't get me wrong there. What are those God-given desires that are placed on the inside of you, those holy ambitions that point you towards God's calling? What is it that you want? That's the key question that we need to be asking and answering during the waiting phase. This leads us to phase two. I'll just call this the courageous phase. So what's Nehemiah's next move? How is, he, how is he gonna answer that huge, loaded question from the king? Will he speak up? Will he get tongue-tied? If he does speak up, what exactly is, gonna, he's gonna, is he gonna say in this moment? I love what the text records for us next in chapter two, verses four and five. Take a look at this, uh, the, the way this is phrased. Nehemiah says this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Now this is one of my favorite, 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 favorite sections in the whole Bible. I know this is a really weird verse to be your favorite verse, but can you just camp out here for a moment? Because there's a lot packed into this little clause, if you will. I absolutely love this, what I call, Kodak moment. Just picture the scene with me. The king asks him this awesome, amazing question. What is it that you want? And right before Nehemiah answers, he takes a deep breath, he braces himself, he pauses briefly to spontaneously pray to the God of heaven, Whenever something really big happens in our lives, there's always that brief moment right before that major event takes place, isn't there? I call it the moment before the moment. There's a moment where we have this experience of, is this my time, am I gonna do this? You know what I'm saying. Let's say you're expecting an important phone call from someone, and then your phone rings, and you look on it, and it's the caller ID. You didn't pick it up yet, but there's this moment. Or for those of you who like to play sports, you're up to bat, and the pitcher throws one, and it looks like a strike, and you gotta decide in that split second whether or not you're gonna swing for the fences. There's a moment there. You've applied for this particular college, and a letter comes in the mail, and it has your name on the front. And as you grab your letter opener, you have a moment right there. It's a sacred moment. It's a special moment. This is the moment in Nehemiah's life that he's been praying for. Those moments are filled with anxiety. For me, those moments, have, I'm nerves like crazy in those moments. It's, for me, it's like life happens in slow motion when those moments occur. And right here in this moment, Nehemiah offers up what you might call an arrow prayer. It's not a long prayer. This is one of those short, one-sentence prayers to God that you offer up when you really need an answer right now, right now, fast. This is a quick one. This is not UPS ground. This is not three-day select. This is not even next-day air. This is a sky telegram. We gotta go right, right to the heart of God. I need an answer right now. This is my time. 
Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a last-minute decision on Nehemiah's part to all of a sudden get spiritual and start praying. He's been praying long in private, and here he prays very short in public. He prays to the God of heaven. One last chance before he lets it fly. So deep breath, short prayer. Now let me make my request. The text says this. Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah's first request to the king here is for permission to leave his post. He's asking for a leave of absence from work. And how does the king respond? Well, verse 6 tells us. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Okay, this is going well. Since I have his ear and since I have his favor and since this seems like a good time to be making these requests, Nehemiah says, I'm kind of on a roll here. Let me go for broke. I got a couple other things I want to ask you. Take a look with me at verses 7 and 8. Two more things. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And number three, May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Nehemiah knows what he's going to need, and he asks the king for everything that he's thought of, and he asks him for three basic things, permission, provisions, and protection. And what's the king's response to all of these three requests? Well, the text tells us this. It says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. What an amazing, amazing answer to prayer. I mean, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He got every single thing he asked for. Can you imagine what this was like for Nehemiah and what it felt like to get his prayers answered in this very specific way from God himself? What this is when God answers our prayers in this way is what we call confirmation. This is God confirming that Nehemiah really was called to this work. And when God calls you, he will often graciously confirm that calling through circumstances that begin to open doors and line up behind what God is calling you to do as well. So watch for that and praise God when he does confirm that call in your life because God will oftentimes show his mighty hand so that you can perceive it and God is merciful and so good in that way. You know what else is so impressive to me here? Nehemiah has done all of his research up front. Did you notice that? He knows exactly what he's going to need for this job long before he ever gets asked. Let's give Nehemiah a little credit here. He's a cupbearer. Okay, fine. He knows exactly how much time he needs to take off. He knows he needs this letter to this person. He wants to go over here for supplies. He wants to get the timber from this guy. He knows exactly what he needs to get the job done. He's done all of his homework. He's prepared. So what that means is that this guy hasn't been sitting around for four months waiting for God to vaguely fix the problem. No, he's already visualized this entire operation in detail and he's totally prepared for this moment. And so what that means for us, friends, is that when it comes to following God's call, there is not a false dichotomy between prayer and planning. We need both. In fact, I'd argue that his preparation shows us that he was expecting for God to answer in prayer and to act on his behalf. And so that's not an indication of his lack of faith. His his planning actually is an indication of the presence of his faith. 
I say this because sometimes people pit these two things against each other, and they say faith and preparation are incompatible. You can't have both prayer and planning. But the truth is, friends, God honors faith and God honors preparation. So if you want God to work on your behalf, you need to pray and you need to do your homework. If you want God to do something in your life, you need to depend on God and you need to count the cost. If you want God to work in a special way, if he's calling you, pray that God does his part. You also need to do your part. One time I was listening to Billy Graham do an interview. And he said after some time, after a couple years and decades of doing these crusades and these missions, he said he actually began to predict the amount of people that would accept Christ at his crusades with some degree of accuracy. And I heard this in the interview, and I'm like, far be it from me to critique a wonderful spiritual leader like Billy Graham, but isn't that a little presumptuous? I mean, how can he possibly predict such a thing? But what he said later on in the interview was he said he noticed a pattern that over the years of doing these crusades, he noticed there's a direct correlation between the number of decisions for Christ and the number of prayer partners that would be at the front of the stadium. And so what he said was that God is only going to bring in a harvest that this city is prepared to handle. And the size of that harvest was always proportionate to the amount of people that were ready to serve. Friends, we need to wait for God to answer our prayers, but we also need to prepare to handle it if he does answer our prayers. So can I ask you, if you've been praying, are you prepared for God to actually answer those prayers? Would you be ready if he did answer your prayer? Think about that. If you're in the waiting phase and you're praying, pray to the God of heaven, but also start preparing your speech. Prayer and planning. So that's Nehemiah. Let's continue in our story. He's got permission. He's got provisions. He's got protection. Now he's on his way. Drop down with me to verse 11. It says this, I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Now, I love this scene in Nehemiah chapter 2. He goes to Jerusalem 900 miles away. He gets settled in. He stays there for a few days. And then in the middle of the night, when nobody else is watching, he takes a midnight ride on horseback all around the perimeter of the city, all by himself, to see everything that he had originally been told by his brother. He wants to picture the scene for himself. Is this as bad as I was told it was? And he's going to go investigate all alone. So picture the scene with me, if you will. It's midnight. The air is cool. The light from the moon is glistening against those broken city walls. You can hear the, the clip-clop of his horse or donkey as he makes his way slowly around the rubble and investigates that city wall. Can you see the scene? Look at verse 13. Nehemiah continues, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which have been broken down and its gates which have been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. The text continues, So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone, or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others 
who would be doing the work. What is Nehemiah doing here? Verse 15 tells us he's examining the walls. The word there in Hebrew means to look into something very carefully. It's actually a a medical term that doctors would use to probe a wound to see the extent of the damage to a patient. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's probing the wounds of the city to see exactly how broken down this city is. And he's looking around going, okay, that section over there, that needs like a skilled carpenter. Okay, this section over here, we need some masons to get on this part. We need somebody who knows what they're doing. Put Mark Malillo on that part over there, okay? And we're gonna go over here. This looks like a big pile of rubble, like anybody could handle this. Pastor Dave could probably take care of this pile of rubble. We'll take care of that. Over here, we need some, some woodwork, and he's taking, taking a look carefully and investigating everything about this broken down city wall. He's getting an idea of how big this job is gonna be. So here's the principle when it comes to following God's calling and fulfilling our own calling. You need to investigate before you initiate. Investigate before you initiate. Now, let me just be honest with you. Sometimes you've got to do this by yourself. Nehemiah is alone right here. He's basically all by himself. Sometimes when God calls you to do something, the first part is you and God. There will be times where you have to work alone, where you're working, other people are sleeping. You're working, other people are resting. And in those times, you'll be tempted to feel sorry for yourself. In those times, you'll be tempted to feel unappreciated. In those times, you'll be tempted to think, did God really call me to do this? I feel like I'm the only one who cares right here. Don't let the enemy tempt you in that way. Let me encourage you. If God has called you, you have to be willing to start the work alone sometimes. That's what God requires as part of his call. And after you've fully prepared yourself, then you can initiate and begin to rally the troops and those around you and galvanize others. But sometimes it starts with you. Sometimes it starts with one. Sometimes it starts with one person who's willing to take this thing on. I love how Leo Tolstoy writes about this in his book, War and Peace. He says this, in a battle, one man throwing down his weapon and running away can panic the whole army. And in a panic, One man snatching up the battle flag and running back toward the enemy can rally the whole army, and no one but God knows what will happen. Nehemiah says, I want to be that one. I'm going to pick up this flag, and I'm going to start running towards this problem. That's me. So Nehemiah, willing to be alone, investigates everything, starts running in the right direction, and moves on after the courageous phase to phase three, the team-building phase. Up until now, Nehemiah has been all by himself doing his research, and now he's ready to go and share with the other Jews his evaluation and his assessment and explain to them his plan. It's time to build the team. So he gathers all the leaders together, and it records what happens next. Take a look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us Rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Notice three things about this section of Scripture. First, notice his honest evaluation. He's totally authentic about what's going on. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't give Pollyanna. There's no rose-colored glasses. He goes, look, it's bad. This place is in shambles. He's not living in a dream world. He's saying, we can't live with this. This place is a wreck. It's a disgrace. Now, why is he doing that? He's scratching them where they itch. 
He knows they don't want to live in a disgrace. Nobody does. So he says something needs to be done about this. It's just reality. Let's look at reality. You know, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, says when you rebuild or revitalize a company, what you have to do is something called the Stockdale Paradox. He says you have to confront the brutal facts without losing hope. And you gotta do both of those things. And so this is Nehemiah saying this is a disgrace. And we gotta face reality. Second observation about this section of scripture is I want you to notice how he's using the first person plural here. Did you notice the words we and us in this section? He's including himself as a leader who's going to be part of the solution. It's not like, hey, you guys need to get working on this over there. Hey, you guys have a problem. You need to clean it up. Let me know when you're done. I'll come back and inspect it. Hey, you guys, you, you really need to fix this thing. I'll be over there in my palace in Susa drinking Starbucks lattes. Let me know when you're done. I'll come check it out. No, Nehemiah said, I'm gonna be right there alongside of you. Let us go and rebuild this. I wanna be part of the solution myself. Third observation. The third observation is I want you to notice that Nehemiah uses a note of spiritual encouragement to get others involved. He says, listen, I've been pursuing God. I think God's opening a door here. I think God's calling us to do this. I think this is our time. I think the Lord is showing us that this is not just about me. This is about us. And we need to go and rebuild this city. And this is how they respond. It says this. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. They strengthen their hands to do this work of God. They're willing to step up and make a difference. I think they've been waiting for this for a long while. I think they were sick of living in this broken down city. I think they can't stand it anymore. I think they finally see, here's a leader who's willing to help us and willing to step in. Now let's face our fears. Let's face this thing by faith. Let's get this job done. And they have this attitude of let's get motivated and let's get this thing moving. And so if you're in the team building phase, what you need to do is reach out for help and invite others to join you. Let me encourage you that here at NBC, we're also building a team of people to do ministry. And so today we have a ministry fair downstairs in Fellowship Hall after the service. You can see all kinds of opportunities to be involved in God's work here at NBC. Uh, there's a kids ministry table. There's a care team table. There's a worship table, AV table. There's a lot of opportunities for you to be part of God's work here at NBC. I encourage you to go downstairs, grab a cup of coffee, talk to a few leaders and ask some questions. We would love to share with you more about serving at NBC. So we've seen phase one, the waiting phase. We've seen phase two, the courageous phase. We've seen phase three, the team building phase. And now we move to phase four, the opposition phase. Now let me warn you about something. When it comes to following God's calling, it's like you're putting a target on your back. As soon as you're ready to take a step out in faith and do his will and obey God and trust God and follow God, I gotta warn you, there's something that happens every single time. As soon as God's people step up, the enemy steps in. As soon as God's people are encouraged, the enemy steps in to discourage. Now, I'm not saying this to be a downer. I'm just saying you gotta expect that and be ready for that when it comes. When God's work gets started, the evil empire strikes back. And so whenever you try to do something significant for God, you're going to face opposition. Nehemiah is no exception. Look at verse 19 as we're introduced to three of his enemies. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So here we meet three enemies in the book. They're going to show up again and again and again. And they're going to ask these kinds of questions. What is this you think you're doing? Now, when the enemy shows up in your life, I want you to recognize these questions because they're very similar. 
Who do you think you are doing this? What is it that you think that you're doing? You can't do that. The enemy will try his best to discourage you. And when he does, I encourage you to simply take that as a compliment. You're in good company. You see this pattern in Nehemiah, but you see this pattern in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. You see this with the prophets. You see this with the Lord Jesus himself. You see this with his apostles. All people who follow God face spiritual adversity. We are in the middle of a spiritual war. It is not peacetime. What kind of reaction would we expect the enemy to have when God's people decide to follow God's calling? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, quote, a wide door of, of effective ministry has been opened for me, and with it there are many adversaries. This is just a reality of following in God's calling. Anybody who's ever accomplished anything great has had to face and overcome opposition. And so when it comes, you gotta remember that greater is he in you than he that is in the world. You gotta remember, I can ignore that stuff. I'm gonna hold my ground. I'm gonna resist the devil and he's gonna flee from me. And this is what Nehemiah does. Take a look at verse 20, the last verse in our text for today. It says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Notice how he responds to his critics and the opposition. He remembers the source of his calling. He remembers that it is God who's the one who's called me to do this. There's a saying, do not forget in the dark what God has told you in the light. When God calls you, you need to remember the favor of God and have determination. When God calls you, you need to remember the words of Winston Churchill, never, 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 never give up. Warren Wearsby, who was the pastor of Moody Church, uh, for quite some time, says it this way. He says, we ought to be equally inflexible, decided, and resolute for God and his holy will. We have to be like the Apostle Paul. Diana shared this verse earlier. We have to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know your labor is not in vain. If you're in the opposition phase, God's word to you is stand firm. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Now take a look at this graphic. We've seen today the different phases of answering God's call. And I just want to ask you in a moment before the Lord, what phase are you currently in? Are you in the waiting phase? Let me encourage you that God's word for you this morning is to be patient. Are you in the courageous phase? Let me encourage you that God's word for you today is to be bold. Are you in the team building phase? Let me encourage you that it's time to reach out. Are you in the opposition phase? Let me encourage you to stand firm. The reason Nehemiah could be so confident and so determined was that God had confirmed that this was his calling all along. In fact, let me just remind you of what he told us in chapter two, verse eight. He said, all of this was possible because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Why is all this going well? Because Nehemiah is such a great leader? No, in fact, we're gonna see he's a flawed leader. Why is this all going well? Because Nehemiah is such a great strategist? No, it's because God was with him. Because the gracious hand of God was upon him. And I love how he's so careful to give the God all of the glory for this success. 
Even though he spent four months in his prayer closet, even though he spent time fasting, even though it took him courage to stand up and ask the king for these things, Nehemiah is crystal clear. The only reason why things are going well is because the gracious hand of my God is upon me. Brothers and sisters, the same thing will be true for you and me. The gracious hand of God, when he calls you, will be upon you. I encourage you to follow that call. Let me invite the worship team to come for one final song. And I want you to just think about the lessons that are here for us as we respond to God's calling on our own lives. Imagine a church full of people who will be willing to respond and answer positively to God's calling upon them. That's the church that we're praying that we have. In fact, let's pause and bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment of prayer right now. Heavenly Father, for those who might be seeking some guidance or clarity regarding your will for their lives, regarding your call on their lives, I ask that you would speak clearly. I ask that you would stir hearts and inspire and empower individuals to respond obediently to you today. Help us to consider the very practical ways that we can respond to your calling in our lives, no matter what period we find ourselves in today. Help us to put this into practice today and in the days to come. We ask you that for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen.